Since we're in a new space, I figured I would try something new that I've never tried in preaching before. I'm going I'm to ask for a little call and response, okay? I'm going to start off the morning by listing some classic combos, some, some dynamic duos that everybody has heard of. So I'm going to say the first thing and you say the second. We'll start off with some easy ones, pop culture references, Romeo and Juliet. Juliet. Good job. Batman and Woody and Buzz. That one's a little quieter, but good job. Or we'll move to sports. Kobe and good job, Clint. Jordan and Pippen. Chicago guys in the back. Good job. Venus and good job. It's a little more confident. All right, food categories. Mac and biscuits and Chips and salsa. Good job. Confident. Peanut butter and no. Peanut butter and chocolate. A Reese's cup is perhaps the best combination of sweet things ever created on earth. I most of y'all know I used to play competitive golf, and uh, sometimes I would, I would play the front nine, and I would go to make the turn, and I would go and get a snack, and I would ask, is, do you have any Reese's Cups in the refrigerator? Because a cold Reese's it did not matter how poorly I played on the front nine. If I could have a cold Reese's Cup at the turn, everything was all better. What do all these dynamic duos have in common? They, what they have in common is unity in diversity. It's two things, two different things that have very different capabilities and capacities coming together to form together something greater than what either one of them could form on their own. They complement one another. This theme, unity in diversity, is our fourth core value. And so in our series on core values, this is where we come today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. And I hope that what you'll come to see this morning is that this, this biblical reality of unity in diversity is the solution to so many of our problems in our world and in the church in our day. Ephesians 4, I'll read verses 1 through 16. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. This is the word of the Lord. How do we live together in the midst of our differences? 
That's the question that opens a 2007 book by Christian philosopher and theologian Kristen Johnson. And it's a question that I would say has only heightened in intensity over the last 15 years. How do we live together in the midst of our differences. It's the challenge of living in a pluralistic society, of a a society where people have different beliefs, different commitments, different backgrounds. And in our context, in our country, there have been different attempts to answer it through the centuries. The first attempt, which lasted from around the time of our beginnings until probably the the early 1900s to mid-1900s. That train's close. (laughs) We're we're adjusting every moment this morning. Uh, the, The first attempt which lasted for the first couple hundred years of American history is is what we'll call the melting pot attempt. You all probably remember in your history classes learning about the melting pot of United States culture. The, The picture, the idea was that people, immigrants from all different countries with all different cultures and backgrounds would come and they would enter into this melting pot and out of the many would come one. There would be one thing that would come out of all these different things that come together in the melting pot. But Over time, people realized that that what the melting pot was actually doing was basically saying, we need to boil out all your differences, all your distinctions, all the things that make you unique. And basically, if you want to come to America, you need to go through the melting pot and become American and become like us. And so over time, people realized that, that this was not the most just, the most loving thing. It was basically all unity with no diversity. And so in the early 1900s, around the progressive era, certainly through the, the civil rights era into the really the late 20th century, you have the tolerance approach. And the tolerance approach says we need to recognize that people have differences and, and, and people are unique and they have different faiths and different religions and different cultural backgrounds, different races and ethnicities. And so we need to tolerate each other. We may not like these distinctions about one another. Uh, we may not celebrate them. We may not think they're good, but you live your life and I'll live mine. We can tolerate one another. The tolerance approach basically gives us partial unity. We can get along. We can be around each other as long as we don't talk about these things that divide us. And partial diversity. You can, you can be who you are as long as it doesn't impinge upon me being who I am. But in the last 20 or so years, people have come to see the problem with tolerance. They've said, look, it's not actually loving or kind if you tell somebody you can be who you are, but I'm going to hate it. So we've moved in the last 20 years or so to what we'll call multiculturalism with a, with a capital M. I'm not just talking about the reality that there are many different cultures living together. What I'm talking about is capital M, the idea that it is not enough to tolerate different cultures and ideologies. You must affirm them as good and equal to all others, all cultures without distinction, are good and should be celebrated. Johnson, in her book, says that multiculturalism often carries with it the demand that all cultures be accorded equal value so that respect is given and value is accorded to all cultures without genuine consideration of the specifics or the merits, merits of the culture in question. In other words, positive judgments of worth are granted across the board without actual engagement. You hear what she's saying? She said, up front, you have to agree that all cultures are all equally good without consideration. The problem, of course, and this is what we're experiencing now, is when the celebration of all cultures as good and equal becomes sort of the golden rule of multiculturalism, what do you do with groups and cultures that don't accept the golden rule? What do you do with groups and cultures that say, no, all cultures, all faiths, all religions aren't equally good? Some are different than others. What do you do with with 
people who are racist or people who are sexist on the one hand, or on the other hand, what do you do with every traditional religious group in human history, like Christians or Jews or Muslims who believe, no, all faiths are not equal with one another? We're seeing that play out in real time. Multiculturalism is not producing greater respect for others. Ironically, it's creating greater polarization and tribalism. Why? Because it's all diversity with no unity. And so we have these three approaches. The melting pot approach is basically chocolate saying to peanut butter, you have to become chocolate if you want a place here. The tolerance approach says, look, we all know peanut butter is inferior to chocolate. You can have your place in the pantry. We won't kick you out of the pantry, but we're going to keep our distance from one another. And multiculturalism basically says chocolate and peanut butter and broccoli and spinach and tuna and okra and beets and olives, they're all equally good and you need to respect all of them. And a well-balanced diet has all of them at every single meal. And if you don't have all of them at every single meal, you at least need to make a disclaimer about why you don't have all of them at every single meal. Now, none of these is a working solution to the problem of how we actually live together. We come back to that original question. How do we live together in the midst of our differences? None of these are working. Does the church, this is the question we want to ask and hopefully answer today, does the church have something unique to offer? Do we have a solution for how we can live together in the midst of our differences, both in here, in the church, and in the world? Not surprisingly, I think that we do. I believe that it starts with what we believe about God. Christians believe that at the heart of all existence, the reality that exists before and beyond and outside of and beneath all creation is the one true God. The one true God. The Nicene Creed, which Christians have confessed and believed for 1,700 years, starts with the simple, concise sentence, we believe in one God. We, we believe in one God. That's unity. That's radical unity at the heart of all things. Deuteronomy 6.4, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first commandment says, do not have other gods besides me. Some of you are familiar with the New City Catechism or the New City Catechism for Kids. Many of you, uh, if you went through our dedication process, you have that. We've been doing some of the first questions with Lydia, and one of the questions is, what is God? I think that's the second question. The answer is God is the creator of everyone and everything. Or as Lydia says, God is the creator of everything and every people, which is true. So God is, is the one being who has created everything else. He is the one, the united one that is underneath all other things. But so far, this is not unique to Christianity. In fact, there are other philosophies, other worldviews, other religions that also believe in one being or essence at the heart of all things. Many ancient Greek philosophers believed in one essence at the heart of everything. Some said it was water. Some said it was fire. Some, interestingly, said that it was change, that the one unchanging thing at the core, at the heart of everything else was change itself. Many Eastern religions today similarly believe that at the heart of everything is one divine essence. But here's where these things go wrong. Uh, for example, modern Eastern religions, many of them teach that, that really there's no distinction between the human soul and the soul of the entire world, the, the all soul. Uh, so spiritual maturity, spiritual growth is coming to recognize that everything is one, that, that my soul and the all soul are actually the same thing. And if you reach the point of, of full spiritual maturity, basically of heaven, 
all that happens is your individual soul becomes dissolved into the all soul. In other words, this is a unity that at the end of the day erases any distinctness. It erases you as an individual person. It says that, that to become fully spiritually mature, to reach heaven, is to dissolve and to cease to exist as such. So we're, we're back to the melting pot, right? Just in religious terms. Now, this is where Christianity is radically different because we not only believe that there is one true God, we also believe that that one true God exists in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed goes on. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and the Father and Son is, and is worshipped with the Father and Son and glorified. In other words, you hear what, what the Creed is saying, that we believe in one God, and yet this one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he always has. At the, the Council of Nicaea where this creed was adopted, the, the, the framers of the creed used this phrase, this Latin phrase, which meant that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are of one essence. They're not just similar to one another. They're not just similar beings. They don't just have a lot in common. They are one God existing in three persons. And this is the same thing Jesus was saying when he gave the Great Commission. He told his disciples to baptize people in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three people, three persons, one name, one God, one essence. And it's what Paul is doing right here in Ephesians 4. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Paul says, There is one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There is one Lord, that's Jesus. And by the way, the New Testament everywhere refers to Jesus as Lord, which is a title that was exclusively used for God in the Old Testament. So there's one Spirit, there's one Lord, and there's one. God and Father of all. Paul is emphasizing both the threeness and the oneness of God. He's just prayed this beautiful, magnificent prayer at the end of chapter three. He's praying that they would experience the love of God, which by the way is a distinctly Trinitarian love. To experience the love of God is to experience the love that the Father has had for the Son in the Spirit from eternity past. Do you realize that for, for you to be loved by God is for you to be loved by the same love with which the Father loves the Son? So Paul's been praying that for them. And now he's about to charge them to be a people of unity and diversity. And what does he appeal to to make that charge? He appeals to the unity and diversity of the triune God. There's one Spirit and one Lord and one God and Father of all. Our society is obsessed with finding a way for people who are different than one another to live together, and, and different in not unimportant ways. But our society does not have the resources to actually make that happen. It doesn't have the resources to make it happen. If at the heart of everything is nothing but unity, then we have to erase all of our individual differences. And if at the heart of everything is nothing but diversity, then we have no shared essence or vision or goal or common identity to appeal to, to have peace with one another. But if at the heart of everything is a triune God, unity and diversity, Father, Son, Spirit, one God, then we have everything we needed to both remain our distinct selves and have unity together. 
Augustine is sort of the hero of Christian Johnson's book that I referenced earlier, and she says, Augustine suggests that it is only in the kingdom of God that differences can come together in loving harmony through participation in the triune God. So citizens of the heavenly city come from all nations, speak all languages, adorn different dress, adhere to different manners of life, and yet they are united through Jesus Christ, bound together in a fellowship of love. Their differences remain and are significant, even as they are woven together and directed toward a greater and more significant goal, namely love of God and one another. Guys, this means that, that the church should be both diverse and united. That is, we, different people with different backgrounds and different racial and ethnic makeups, different experiences, different genders, as we come together pursuing the same ultimate goal, namely love of God and love in Christ, we become united even as we are diverse. As if that weren't enough to have the Trinity undergirding this call for unity and diversity, we also have grounds in our salvation for unity and diversity. Now, it just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? that the triune God would save people in such a way as to highlight both diversity and unity. In Genesis 12, the, the first, the second maybe, promise of salvation, God enters into this covenant with Abraham, and he tells them, through your seed, through your offspring, through this one nation, that's unity, I am going to bless all the nations, all the peoples of the world. Unity in Diversity. In Ephesians 2, a couple chapters right before this, Paul is writing about the unity that Jews and Gentiles have with one another in Christ. These are racial categories. Jew and Gentile are not ethnic categories. Jew is an ethnic category, but Gentile just means everybody who's not a Jew. So these are racial categories. And Paul is saying that on the cross, Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility between different races. So there's unity in diversity in that sense as well. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about spiritual gifts. All these people have all these different spiritual gifts, and yet they're united because they come from the same God and therefore the same purpose, serving the church. 1 Timothy 6 talks about unity between rich and poor. Revelation 5 talks about unity between every tribe and tongue and nation. And again, we see it in this text. Verses 4 through 6 again. To go along with the one spirit, the one Lord, the one God, we see one body, one hope, one faith, and one baptism. One body. One of the the common metaphors in the New Testament for the church is the body of Christ. You become so united with Christ that you become parts of, members of his body, hands and feet and ears and noses. There's unity in the body, even though there are many different parts. One hope our one common shared hope in God through Christ, one faith. We confess the same thing. We believe in in a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We believe in a Savior, Christ, who came from heaven to save us by dying on a cross and rising from the dead. And one baptism. Now, this is interesting. Uh, As I was reflecting on it this week, I was thinking about how our tradition as a Baptist church, like we, we have Baptists in our denominational name, And yet, I don't think we often emphasize that there is one baptism. The most common way that we talk about baptism in our tradition is to talk about it as as my public profession of faith. And it is not less than that. It is certainly your public profession of faith. But when that's the most common way we talk about it, who are we emphasizing? We're emphasizing the person getting baptized. 
which means that in a way we're ironically undermining the sense that there is one baptism. There's not as many baptisms as there are Christians. There is one baptism. In 1 Peter 3, Peter gives this amazing analogy for it. He, he looks back to Noah and the ark and the flood, and he says that the ark was a picture of Christ, and the flood was a picture of baptism. And the flood, all the people who were related to Noah come into this, flood, this ark, and it shelters them and saves them through the waters of God's judgment in the flood. And Peter is saying in the same way, all who are related to Christ who is the new and better Noah, come into the ark, which Christ is also the new and better ark, and together they, they pass through the floodwaters of God's judgment as pictured in baptism. So we have, we have a shared baptism. We share in the one baptism of the church. We see this again in verses 7 through 12. Verses 4 through 6 emphasize the unity of the church. Verses 7 through 12 emphasize the diversity of the church. Paul talks about the diverse spiritual gifts from the one Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus ascends to the right hand of God in heaven, and he gives spiritual gifts to the church. This is not a comprehensive list. He includes apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And all of these are equipping the saints, which is all Christians, to use their unique gifts to serve the church. The point of this is that your uniqueness, your personality, your cultural background, your racial and ethnic makeup, your quirks and your, your interesting personality traits and your interests and what really like, gets you going, gets you thinking, gets you interested, interested, these things are not accidents. And they're not incidental to who you are. And you're not to check them at the door when you get here. Whatever it is that, that makes you you, you're not to leave at the door when you walk into church. You bring that with you. And yet... All of those things, even though they're brought in with you, are to be submitted to the greater goal, namely the love of God and the love of others. This is unity in diversity. You remain your diverse selves. Everybody who comes in here is different and brings that differentness and uniqueness into church with them, and we all together submit those differences to the high call of the love of God and the love of others. What is it like to experience this? Well, first, it has been given to us objectively, but we must work to experience it subjectively. Look at verses one through three. Paul says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He says to keep the unity of the spirit. We have the unity of the spirit. It's been given to us. We're already baptized into the one Lord Jesus Christ. We have unity objectively in Christ. And yet, Paul tells us we have to work to experience it. You say, what do you mean? How how can we work for something that's already been given to us? It's a mystery, and yet it's like the mystery that's at the heart of the whole Christian life. Everything about being a Christian is working to experience what is already ours. God says, you're holy, therefore be holy. I've declared you righteous in Christ, therefore be righteous. And he says, you're united in Christ, therefore be united. So we work, we protect, we fight to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is, Paul says, walking worthy of our calling. It includes humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. Paul says, making every effort. In other words, it's hard work. 
Like, it would be easier, wouldn't it, to bail when unity in diversity gets difficult. It would be easier to leave and go to a different church where everybody votes like you. We're, we're coming up on another presidential election, and you guys are probably going to see people post stuff on Facebook and Instagram about their favorite candidates or least favorite candidates who go to church with you, and you might disagree with them, and, and you might even be surprised by them. Are you going to leave over it? Wouldn't it be better to continue to love them, pray for them, and maybe even, I don't know, like, again, unity in diversity, right? Not just one or the other. I, I think sometimes we're told the way to, to, to not become disunited over these things is to just not talk about them. I don't think that's the way either. Like, maybe you could, could buy your friend a cup of coffee and ask to learn from them and hear from their perspective and encourage one another and challenge one another toward greater growth and maturity together, even if you still disagree on the political issues. It's easier to leave and go to a church where everyone views our cultural conversations about race and social justice the same as you. It's easier to go to a church where people make about the same amount of money as you. It's easier to go to church where people school their kids in the same way you do. I know that in a couple years, right, like we're, we only have a couple families who have kids in school right now, but in a couple years, there's gonna be a time when like, you feel really strongly about the way that you feel called to school your kids and somebody else is doing it differently. Are you gonna judge them? Are you gonna trust that like, we can go to church together and disagree about this? It's easier to go to church where everybody is the same as you, but the church is not a social club where everybody is meant to look the same. And if you hate being around Christians who are different than you, you're gonna really hate being in heaven for eternity. Chapter 3 of Ephesians actually says that it's the unity and diversity of the church through which God displays his multifaceted wisdom to his spiritual enemies. God boasts in the unity and diversity of his church. It's the proof that the gospel is miraculous and that it works. And we could add that it's utterly confounding to the world. We, we want and we pray that there would be a day and a time in the future where people would come and visit King's Cross Church and they would leave thinking, I have no idea why those people hang out with one another. They are so different than one another. Like I can't for the life of me figure out why they would want to spend time together. It's confounding to the world when they see people who are so different living in such intimate community together. So first, we, we have been given it and we have to work to experience it. But second, when it's clicking, it's awesome. Like when it's working, it's amazing. Verses 12 through 16. Let's just run through this list quickly together, okay? Verse, uh, verse 12, if I can find my place. Paul says that, that the saints are equipped for the work of ministry. When, when people are using their diverse spiritual gifts for the same united goal, the saints, all of you, are equipped to do ministry to serve the church. The body of Christ is built up. Verse 13, we reach full unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. We reach a unity that is so full that it cannot be added to. And what is the unity in? It's not in our politics. It's not in our culture. It's in the knowledge of God's Son. We grow into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Does that say what you think it said? Yes. Like when we are fully sanctified, we become as mature as Christ. We're not gonna get there in this life, but we're working toward it together. We will no longer, verse 14, be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of human teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. How much do we need this right now? 
Like it, it's always been the case that people have, have you know, gotten attracted to and fallen away because of cunning human teaching and, and false teaching, but we just feel it more right now, don't we? Like probably all of you can think of a friend who has left the gospel, who has left the, the true faith. And, and I think that it's possible that it is in part because the church has failed to value unity and diversity that so many people have walked away in this way. They've had differences of thought, differences of opinion, and they've thought, I'm not allowed to, to hold those thoughts and opinions at that place, so I'm going to leave. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love will grow up into Christ. Verse 16 says, we develop into a body that is just perpetually building on itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. You, you get the picture. It's all these different parts coming together to work on the building up of the body. I get this, this image of like an artificially intelligent robot that learns how to perpetually make itself bigger and stronger and smarter. That's like the image that I get from verse 16. When the church is working well as united and diverse with the power of the Holy Spirit, it builds itself up in love. That's what verse 16 says. Toward the end of the 2009 Wes Anderson film, The Fantastic Mr. Fox, Mr. Fox, who is voiced by George Clooney, finds himself and his friends in trouble. After he's picked a fight with three big mean farmers, Boggus, Bunce, and Bean, by stealing their chicken and geese and cider, uh, they have to dig he and all of his friends have to dig these deep tunnels to get away from the farmers who are coming after them. And so they, they finally, they think they've gotten away from them and they're about to have this big feast, but the farmers flush them out with uh, alcoholic cider and it brings them up into the sewers and they're there stuck in the sewers thinking about how impossible it's going to be to ever escape. And so Mr. Fox is going to go give himself up to free his, uh, his nephew, Christofferson, who's being held for ransom. But the title of the scene is not you know, the moment where we all give up. The title of the scene is A Go for Broke Rescue Mission. Mr. Fox is not content to call it quits, and he gives this rousing speech. He says, when I look down this table at the exquisite feast set before us, I see two terrific lawyers, a skilled pediatrician, a wonderful chef, a savvy real estate agent, an excellent tailor, a crack accountant, a gifted musician, a pretty good minnow fisherman, and probably the best landscape painter working on the scene today. I also see a room full of wild animals. Wild animals with true natures and pure talents. Wild animals with scientific sounding Latin names that mean something about our DNA. Wild animals, each with his own strengths and weaknesses due to his or her species. Anyway, I think it may very well be all the beautiful differences among us that might just give us the tiniest glimmer of a chance of saving my nephew and letting me make it up to you for getting us into this, this crazy whatever it is. I don't know. It's just a thought. Thank you for listening. Cheers, everyone. God has a go-for-broke rescue mission in the world. And for whatever reason, God could just snap his fingers and do it all by himself. But for whatever reason, he has chosen to use people. He's chosen to use a church to preach his gospel and make disciples and accomplish his go-for-broke rescue mission in the world. And I think it may very well be all the beautiful differences among us brought together in submission to the same highest commitment, namely Christ, that give us not just a tiny glimmer of hope of accomplishing our mission, but all the confidence in the world. But I don't know. It's just a thought. Thank you for listening. Cheers, everyone.